and gentlemen, boys and ghouls, step right up. Behind this curtain lies a ghastly concoction of delight, horror, fantasy, and terror. Your every wish is our command. Your every whimsical desire brought to life. But I'm warning you, there's always a price. Welcome to the greatest show on earth! Hello and welcome to the Asian Cinema Film Club Halloween Special. I'm your host as always, Elwood Jones, and joining me of course is my co-host, Mr. Stephen Palmer. Why, thank you, Elwood. Welcome to Halloween. That was my Romanian Dracula voice. Okay. Didn't work, did it? <laughs> I thought it was alright. Um, tonight we are going to be looking at Dream Home from 2010. Uh, you voted, we listened. And when the dust settled, Dream Home came out on top. Uh, even though there was obviously some films which came close. Uh, suddenly I Saw the Devil, Dark Water, um, Uzumaki. Oh, we're uh, very noteworthy contenders, uh, but certainly uh, Dream Home won out with the majority of the vote, uh, which I'm sure Stephen was very happy about, because you've been talking about bringing this film to the show for quite some time. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, we do every film in that list, including another one you didn't mention, Death Bell, I think we will bring to the show sooner rather than later, Halloween or not. But yes, obviously this is a film by my, my favourite Hong Kong director, Pang Hong Cho, or Edmund Pong, Pang is what we'll call him because it's easier, um, released the same year as Love and a Puff. That's right. So um, somehow I've managed to go from zero to two Edmund Pang films from the same year in the same in a handful of episodes. But um, yeah, uh, I remember being really excited when this came out, but I do also know it's a very polarizing movie so i'm interested to hear what you think about it well it was certainly an experience this one was um if uh, you regular listeners of the show will know that i've obviously been on a bit of a horror binge uh since the start of september so we're now obviously into month two of this been doing uh my own little hooptober list and um certainly it's been a lot of horror consumption so when this one came along this was the one that just makes you sit and question what are you doing with your life <laughs> so it was very interesting as well to obviously come on tonight and obviously do the look up who directed it and see obviously as you said alright this is directed 2010 same year as Love and the Puff comes out two years later he directs the sequel to Love and the Puff Love and a Buff and also does Vulgaria so it's weird that we have that double ending of uh, something you know for the mainstream something for the more obscure scene yeah so you know to put it into some context i get the feeling he was more work for hire on this one so although there are things in this film which we can definitely point to these uh these are uh, edmund pang um sort of tropes um this really comes with the lead actress josie ho um yep. who we saw in a very early episode of ours um the twins movie um, oh, Twins Effect. Twins Effect. She was she was in that, but she's um you know she's a fairly popular actress in in Hong Kong terms. But her dad is a mega rich casino owner from Macau, <laughs> so <laughs> she has she has family money and she bless her heart. That's a very patronising thing saying, but you know she she was really interested in resurrecting sort of the horror genre. Remember, this is sort of ten years after plus after the handover and all that, where 
Hong Kong Chinese horror has been quite borderized by Chinese mainland Chinese censorship. Um, I think I read somewhere that she'd seen the story of Ricky <laughs> and said, why can't we make a film like that? And so she set up this company. I want to say it's called 852 Films or 832 Films. Yeah. Um, where she has basically acted as a producer on some really interesting Hong Kong movies and actually movies that have been done outside of Hong Kong as well. So I think this was the first... Um, Juno Max um, made a couple who stars in this movie. I think he's made a couple related to this. There's the one with um, the Japanese AV model in it. I can't remember what it's called, but anyway, it's 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 kind of interesting. It's a Cat Three movie, just like um, uh, Love and a Puff was, but for completely different reasons. Um, it was also interesting because Asian cinema in general doesn't have a lot of slasher films they do exist and obviously we've talked endlessly about various cat 3 movies so you could talk about things like ebola syndrome and the like having a kind of slasher movie thing but that that sort of classic somebody going around killing loads of people that are having sex and stuff like that kind of movie isn't something that there is a lot of in Asian cinema period there's there's one or two so this really excited really refreshing to see that and at the same time, bringing all the normal social commentary and stuff in. I, obviously, it's no spoiler to say I really love it, but I know a lot of people found it difficult to put the two parts together. And it is, I hope you agree, pretty fucking gory. <laughs> and here's the second film we've got with a cop chopping. It's just continuing our long-standing trend of penis trauma on the show, isn't it? So, like, it's like certain uh, certain podcasts out there they like nail themselves to a director or they a particular type of cinema. Uh, for ourselves, it seems to be the inadvertently that penis trauma has become our thing. Yeah, we should we could rename it the pe- the penis trauma show. But yeah, um, can't and- wait to see what the sponsors think of that one. It also shocked me much to find out that this film is is twelve, thirteen years old. Um, but just, just like, oh my god, <laughs> it's and you know, and it's set in the, in the, you know, effectively in the sort of the two thousand and eight financial yep. crisis, and we sit here today, in the middle of another international financial economy, you know, global recession crisis time. So yes, how how things cycle around. It's always interesting how we see different films interpret particular crisis at the time. Uh, certainly, when we saw with like the films like Killing Me Softly was a commentary on the collapse of the financial market, and we've seen films such as uh, The Big Short, which presented a really interesting take on the collapse of the housing market. And obviously, with this one, we've got the Hong Kong take on the inflated property market, which. For whatever reason, um, Josie Holt saw as being a slasher. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> and this is sort of further backed up by Emma and Pang. I mean, saying that he always wanted to make a slasher. He was very influenced by what he called Hollywood B-movies. Mm. Even though I would argue that, you know, uh, that slashers aren't generally B-movies as such. Um, well, I yeah, mean, slash- I think they are a well-trod genre that... You know, what, what number Halloween film have we do, just come out recently? Well, something up to 13 or something, I think, with Halloween. It's 
because you got to remember as with Halloween the original run went up to six and then obviously we had H2O and then we had the one that came I think was it Resurrection after that and then you entered the Z- Rob Zombie 2 Halloween Kills and then the new free from Bloomhouse yeah. and and uh and, and, and so, so, full disclosure, is it a full disclosure? I did my um, dissertation at university on Halloween. <laughs> but there was only Halloween 1 and 2 and Season of the Witch then. And it's got loads of it. I, it wasn't just on Halloween. It was on Halloween and um, Night of the Living Dead and something else, which I can't remember because it was a long time ago. But uh, So slasher films have always kind of interested me. I wouldn't say I'm a, you know, a, a, a complete horror fiend. I, li- I like a horror movie. Um but one of the things about horror, maybe not about slashes, but other horror movies. So I think we've spoken before about zombies and vampires and those monster movies often stand in for sort of sociological stories that they're trying to tell or economic stories or something like oh, that. Of course. Yeah. Horror has always uh, been representative Abs- of Abs- things which are going on in the time. Um, yeah. Certainly like a lot of uh, things to do with like the Vietnam and uh, yeah. the Reagan era, especially. And even Romero, especially, is very of his his films always very representative of the time so Absolutely. when you have like dawn of the dead it's about like this mass consumption uh the yeah. rise of like these strip malls and stuff and these were like the sort of it, that we become like mindless consumers and that's how we saw dawn and then he goes off and a few years later and he'll come back and he do something like land of the dead and like now it's about capitalism and you know this divide between the haves and the have nots yeah. and stuff and, so and, and obviously day of the dead is Day of the Dead the third one? Day of the Dead's the third one. It's whether yeah, in the, uh, the bunker, yeah, with... the military industrial complex, and Bob and all that makes his his showing, doesn't he? Um, yeah, so horror horror movies are often either allegorical, as you suggest, you know, and very deliberately, um, you know, working on multiple levels and talking about society as a whole, or sometimes just because they're, they're part of the zeitgeist and they they come out of those sort of background societal or political events that are happening and and they they rather than being a deliberate um directorial allegory about allegory 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 of these things um sorry words aren't coming out my mouth tonight they're just representative because they're just part of the eight they know that zeitgeist that spirit of the age um whereas slasher films um on the whole don't do that they have their own rules and tropes. I'm sure we can come up with a couple of examples where there are, there's a little bit more going on. But on the whole, they're exercises in suspense and shocks and putting bums on seats and and um, popcorn sales. Um, yeah, certainly. I mean, there are obviously the slashes out there which are more, as you said, it's all about, about the hook. And I think this is more when you look towards the slashes of the... Uh, 80s so when we get into like the Friday the 13th and the Nightmare on Elm Streets it becomes more about the the shock in the spectacle and it, you hit a point around part 4 and it suddenly becomes less about the the teens and more about the killer and how he's going to dispatch this latest group um, and we suddenly start seeing like characters becoming less about characters and more about filling um, stereotypes, you know, the jock, the slut, the nerd, the geek, That's right. whatever you uh, want it to be. And, and I think, and how inventive you can make the kills. Which, yes, which, exactly. Which is, you know, it, it, you're right. It's about the spectacle, and it's not, it's not a subgenre which often is is tied into something smarter. Either, you know, I, 
talk, you talked about George Romero, and we're going way off topic here, but hey, it's Halloween, so let's talk about horror movies. Um, but the Night of the Living Dead, George Romero gets a lot, you know, there's a lot of talk, oh, black leading man, it's talking about this, talking about that. Um, I'm not sure George Romero was thinking about any of those things. He just had some friends and some money and he made a low budget horror film and actually it, it's it's critics and and time which has laid on some of the things that that film might be talking about and george romero was a very canny man and basically said oh yeah yeah that's what i was thinking i doubt oh it. yeah Werner Holman did the uh, same thing with starship troopers when yeah. that movie came out nobody was seeing it as a satire of the material <laughs> military complex <laughs> no, it, it, yeah. And now, like, years later, it's sort of like, oh, it's this cutting satire. It's like, it was not viewed as that when we yeah, went to Paul see Verhoeven it. Paul Verhoeven is very guilty of that. I mean, you and I have both seen the the the, the documentary about... Um, oh, Showgirls, Showgirls uh, You which, Don't Know which, Me. <laughs> yeah, which, which has evidence of um, Verhoeven completely rewriting history in front of panels. <laughs> they, they literally call him out on it. And that's a love letter to showgirls but yeah and, and but that's fine all film you know any any film of any standing which starts getting looked at by critics either like internet fucking critics like you and me or or genuine scholarly critics will gain from its you know people writing and talking about it right so it, it's okay but yeah the bringing it back to dream home i don't it's just just really interesting because this just could have been a straight-up inventive slasher with a much less involved backstory for our... Should we call her an anti-hero? I don't know what to call her. Or it could have been a straight-up drama full of Edmund Pang things like, you know, long chats of funny stories, yeah. the characters getting to do things, the opening scene. Um... Do you remember when we watched Love and the Puff, there's that opening scene, which is somebody telling a, a, a scary story about something being in somebody's trunk of their car in the car park. And so it feels like a horror movie and then turns into people just chit-chatting. Oh, that was that Johnny Toe movie. That wasn't uh, Love and the Puff. No, it's Love, and a pu- it's Love and the Puff. It's Love and the Puff. Okay. So because oh, the, what it turns out is, is that the people having a smoke are telling the story. And then it comes to some fruition later on. But like the beginning of this, where, and I'll let you do the normal plot summary in a minute, but, you know, you think it's going to be a bit like that because it's an Edmund Pang film. You see some poor security guard gets murdered by some character in a baseball cap and then you think it's going to turn into something else. But no, no, it turns out that's just the middle of the fucking story. <laughs> so it's, it, 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 but it's, it's very much an Edmund Pang film. Anyway, there's 15 minutes of ramble. <laughs> Let's talk about the film properly. <laughs> Yeah, so as we mentioned, said already, this film is directed by Edmund uh, Pank. It's uh, shot out of chronological order, which uh, will certainly, certainly is a film, something that we're going to touch on a bit later, um, as there's various markers that uh, Pang uses throughout the film to mark the timeline out. And the film itself is uh, set in Hong Kong and follows uh, Shangle Shong, here played by Josie Ho, who is working two jobs and is aiming to buy her own apartment with a view of Victoria Harbour, a throwback in many ways to her grandfather, a sailor who owned an apartment because it had a view of the 
ocean and at the same time the local yakuza is teamed up uh, with local government to start forcing out the residents with some very sort of callous means including throwing water snakes into their apartment which is nothing of something of creative and she harbors a lot of sort of resentment of the way that family's been treated as well as the fact that the rising housing market is making it almost impossible for anyone to buy property something that we can uh, all relate to here especially here in the uk yeah so just to put that in context i read somewhere during you know at the time this film was made the average hong kong person hong konger um was receiving about a one percent pay rise but property was going up more like 14 to 20 percent so hong kong you know is a, is a small island plus some 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 mainland on kowloon side but hong kong island, there's a finite amount of space for property and you, you, if you haven't been there, you've seen it in the movies, you know, these giant complexes that go up. You know, even the planes used to fly past them. They, 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 are, they are huge, they are small. That's why they all eat out, because there's no room for kitchens and stuff like that. It's really hard for an average person doing an average job to to buy property. And then it's further complicated by the, the way that societally they'll look after their parents and stuff like that so people sort of move out and then expect their parents to move in with them so there's a whole bunch of stuff around that but yes very very similar to now where people can't pay their mortgages thank you liz goodbye liz that's that's dated the podcast doesn't it Uh, at the same time, as you mentioned already, she's got the burden of looking after uh, her family. Um, she was very resentful of like her childhood where the low-end housing was knocked down so that developers can build more expensive flats. And she's had held this sort of childhood promise that one day she's going to earn enough money so she can buy a, a flat to... Um, a new apartment for herself to live in with her mother and father Um, her mother dies before she's able to fulfill the promise so it becomes even more of an obsession while her father becomes ill because of inhaling dust and asbestos during his job as a uh, construction worker but his uh, medical insurance doesn't cover his bills which further eats into her budget creating this almost impossible situation where her dream becomes all the more out of reach it would seem and then she comes up with a very unique way which she's going to rebalance the market. So yeah, one, is... one for us not to follow, by the way. <laughs> what do you mean, no one for well, let's, us? Let's, oh, let, right, let's yes. not. Let's not. Let's not do what Josie Ho does. <laughs> so Dream Home is really kind of unique in the way the fact that we know her intentions straight off the bat because as you mentioned already Stephen she's introduced bumping off a serial um, she's introduced bumping off a security guard so what we're actually seeing right off the bat is normally we see a character who starts off relatively normal and then they hit that breaking point and then the rest of the film will follow them in their descent into psychosis with the character of uh, Cheng instead we're seeing her at her breaking point so she's carrying out this series of murders but at the same time the film is constantly switching back and forth to fill in a backstory so slowly over the course of the film as we're seeing her carrying out increasingly more more gruesome murders on the residents of this tower block that she set her set her sights on she we find out what 
has sort of driven her to this point, all the horrible things that are going on in life, the fact that she can't get a loan, the fact that um, her father's medical insurance won't cover his treatment, and she's got a deadbeat uh, boyfriend who she meets in love hotels and who often scampers out in the middle of the night, leaving her to foot the bill as well. <laughs> to go back to his wife and child. It's a real classy <laughs> act. That's Ethan Chan at one of his most slimy... <laughs> He's got the whole 90s... Um curtain fringes you know he looks like he's a member of the happy mondays doesn't he with his <laughs> fringe but yeah Ethan Chan's not normally that slimy so that's quite a nice performance um and he she asked him for a loan he refuses because he's only busy interested in sort of getting his end away um and there's that scene where she goes to the love hotel and she turns on the tv and every channel is porn which I thought was um, kind of amusing. And then when she goes down in the in the morning to try and find out where her boyfriend's disappeared to, and she, the receptionist's like, oh, yeah, he left it too. And it's sort of like, now you've got to pay for the full night because you only came in on the hourly rate. Yeah. Which uh, shows what sort of classy establishment this is. Yeah, I didn't know. So, I mean, it shows my ignorance and maybe my lifestyle, but I didn't realise there were hourly rate hotels. <laughs> Depends in the world you are. <laughs> so, there we go. I've learned, I've learned something. But, yeah, she obviously paid expecting to be there a couple of hours and they spent the whole night apart from he fucked off in the middle of the night yeah so she's you know as as you say so so the so the, the film's backbone is this night of terror that she puts through the people of this this um an apartment block that she desperately wants to move into but keeps going back to you know either fairly recently or right back to when she was a foul-mouthed little child um and 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 just puts everything in what she's doing to some context um so it's an in, it's, it is interesting it's very non-linear isn't it and the backbone of the story you know normally you maybe would expect the backbone of the story to be her life and then it's her end in the night of terror but no it all it's all kind of mixed up and and often mate i often watch these films and and you should, maybe the first kill and then the last kill are the spectacular ones but this one just really goes for all of them <laughs> <laughs> on, we'll get we'll get there certainly so i mean the film did encounter a number of production issues because of the level of violence in it because josie ho obviously coming get uh into this film wanting to make something similar to the story of ricky o which is outrageous and super violent continuously pushed pang to make the film more and more violent more outrageous and at the same time he didn't want the film to be more violent and was aiming for more real more realism in the film um and I, looking at the finished product who do you think won out oh i think josie won i mean there are there are kills in here that i think would grace any western horror film maybe you disagree but oh no there's <laughs> there, there, there's it's it's i mean the, f the first kill that happens this I, I think it's the oh sorry after oh, so we get the we get the um, the security guard at the beginning, right? Although yes. effectively he kills himself, <laughs> but 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 you think and you think it's going to go somewhere because obviously he's got the hammer and stuff, hasn't she? And you, and you so basically she sort of slips a plastic tie around his neck and he ends up getting his carotid artery or something as he's trying to take it off. But she's holding a hammer the whole time, so you think she's going to smash his head in. So there's a bit of oh, that was kind of interesting. Um, but then when we she actually carries on, there's this poor filipino maid in a flat in an apartment 
and she has a knife to the back of her and her eye pops out. And it's like, <laughs> I wasn't expecting, even watching it again, this must be the fourth time I've watched this film, that always gets me. Because that's the sort of thing you don't, it's just so well done because it's not too close up, so it doesn't look a bit doesn't look Eli Roth overly fake, if you know what I mean. Yeah, of course. But but you just see the knife go through and you see, sort of see the eye fly off, and it's like okay, and from there it just gets worse and more extreme. So yeah, I think I think I think Josie Ho absolutely. Won. I sure I assume you agree. There are some certainly some startling moments in this. I mean, certainly we we have a much uh, discussed um, plastic bag killing involving a Hoover. Yeah, where she basically vacuum seals uh, a woman's head. So, so she's got um, yeah. So there's these bags, aren't they, which you can store clothes in? Look, people, I, I've got some. You store your clothes in, and then you suck all the air out using the Hoover, and yeah. so, so so it's like a space saving thing. And let's. That's, this is a pregnant woman. This is this is an innocent pregnant woman that she basically suffocates to death, quite graphically after a bit of a beatdown fight. And um, well, that's something I was like really questioning because we have the setup and then the screen fades to black and the sound continues, and then when we come back to her, she's kind of like um, sort of in the aftermath of her performing this. Uh, Asphyxiation via via vacuum sealing her head with this uh with a plastic bag and a zip tie, and then she then basically so, sucks the air out. I'm not. How did you watch this movie? I saw this. Uh, this was online, so I've seen the uh the stream copy that you can get for Amazon. So okay, I so so the other controversy about this film is that there are a couple of cuts. So in Hong Kong, a bit of the pregnant woman death. And the um, cock chopping, I think, are both cut from the Hong Kong version. Right. I think, though, the, ver- the the Western version is the uncut version, but that might be why you're seeing the fade to black. I can't remember exactly. So there may be a little bit edited out because of the version that you're watching. <clears throat> what I will say is, if you get the Hong Kong DVD, it is the edited version. And then in the special features, there's the bits that were cut out. <laughs> it's the most pointless censorship <laughs> ever. <laughs> you can literally get the whole film if you want it. But so um, just have a look on the B, the BBFC here yeah. because normally when it comes to I, when I, it comes to making cuts, it's normally things such as animal cruelty is a big yeah. trigger point. I, and this is obviously after James Furman's Reign of Terror. So, but I I would have thought we're seeing the uncut version. Those cuts were controversial because they were in Hong Kong and pointless. So hopefully, no. Nope. Apparently, it's not cut. It's just a stylist choice. Um, but no, there are some really certainly some shocking moments when it comes to the violence in this movie, and it's. I think it's the fact that we got Josie Hose carrying this out, who herself is not a ruthless killer as such she's a very driven killer but she's not completely ruthless and in many ways she's kind of like Forrest Gumping her way through this reign of terror that she's inflicting on this block she's got certain things that she has in mind where she appear to be a really efficient killer such as like when um, she bursts into one of the apartment and they, they go to open the door and she like fully kicks it open and then there's other moments where it's such as the uh, one of the final attack sequences where she's um, cutting up a, a group of rowdy teens 
where it sort of comes off a bit a lot more uh, sort of clumsy. Yeah, it's a bit of yeah, rowdy teens. There's a couple of horny blokes and two Chinese prostitutes. There's, there's some real <laughs> uncomfortable uh, sexual violence in there. Yeah, um, and also you get to see a man smoke a spliff with his guts hanging out. <laughs> it's... Oh yeah, it's, it's, there is. Uh, yeah, she disembowels uh, th- this guy. He spends a lot of time just sort of like bleeding out, and then he's. His sort of final words are his remark in the fact his blunt has gone out. It's like, oh, it went out. <laughs> um, and it's at that point things sort of like spiral downhill really quickly. You get <coughs> Absolutely, yeah. Some inspired moments in this, uh, such as the aforementioned cock shopping, which the girl that he's sort of uh, having sex with mistakes for an ejaculation spray. <laughs> oh, baby, that was so much. <laughs> Which, which I have to say was really, really fun. And then we have a really comically bad-looking um, board through the throat. This is the this is the girl one the girl one of the prostitutes, isn't it? Yeah, because we have this is the thing when it comes to the girl. We have some really great moments, such as like a knife through the throat, the aforementioned knife through the eye, uh, the guy who breaks his neck on the table. Oh, really phenomenal pieces of gore. And then you have moments where she kills a. Um, she kills a girl by stabbing a, a plank from the bed through her through her mouth, and then she just randomly appears with this plank still in her mouth later in the scene. Um, and the same as when we have these uh, two cops show up, and we get some really fake-looking gunshot wounds that they try to they try to blend by having like flapping skin and and whatnot, but it just just looks awful. Yeah, I don't, don't you find that a lot about some of these movies, though, that the, that the quality of some of the practical effects goes from the sublime to the fucking awful. But yeah, I, and again, I don't know if that's a stylistic choice, mate. Um, is it just because it's a fairly low budget film or is it because they're trying to channel some kind of B movie? I don't know. But that is, I agree with you, that looked a bit weird. Um, and that whole, yeah, and, and then is that... That's before the police turn up or during the police turning up, isn't it? It's during the police yeah, turning up right. and it looks as if she's not she's gonna get caught and then of course she gets the the upper hand um in the situation and it's as it, as we said, it uh, switches between her having like this ruthless efficiency and at the same time being kind of like bumbling her way through it and the film can never seem to decide um where sort of like her character is supposed to be obviously she's very driven in her goal of going out and committing all these these murders and i won't spoil like the end of this this film because it gets into some more sort of financial complexities but it's never really sort of clear i mean it's not like she's like someone who's had these underlying issues of psychosis where she's been like killing people on the side kind of like patrick bateman this is just a woman who just like sets out with this goal it's we see all these things that have been piling up in her background as the film progresses, which makes us very sort of sympathetic to her character and her, and her plight. But at the same time, she is just absolutely ruthless towards her victims. She has no concern over like who they are. It's not like they're bad people. They're just people who just happen to be in the wrong place, or in this case, living in living in the wrong place. I mean, yeah, there is no. She's not committing revenge on these people. And they're not really fitting any... I mean, some of them are fucking annoying. 
Like if you lived next to those young boys with the prostitutes with their fucking mixing desk and everything in there, that would be fucking annoying. <laughs> um, the guy, you know, she kills so she kills the pregnant woman and her maid, who I would suggest are guilty of nothing more than being a bit entitled, you know, from their FaceTime or whatever it is they're having with their friend or the maid's listening in. But her husband is cheating on her. Um, so he's a bit of a dick. But, you know, but the Shung, uh, Josie Ho's character has no real axe to grind, if you avoid the pun, with, um, with against any of these people. It's just, you know, as we find out, semi-spoiler now this is just her way of lowering the price of the apartment um just a bit extreme and i don't suggest this as a as a suggestion but yes it it seems like the way i read it she comes in with a plan she's going to kill a couple of people it gets out of fucking control and as it gets more and more out of control she becomes less and less effective and luck plays much more of a part you know the, the the original murder of the security guard and the murder of the pregnant lady seem to be fairly well planned out. You know, she's got, she's got the tools to which to do this or she's worked out how to do it. Everybody after that is a bloody accident and she's lucky to survive. But she gets hurt, doesn't she, herself quite badly. She does, and that's what helps to serve as the real markers here of like where we are in the timeline. I mean, obviously there is obviously um, a clock that uh, marks out the times of the different uh, killings, and that can also be used as a placeholder of where we are in the actual timeline. But what um, what's really sort of clever is that you see her get like different uh, scars or injuries. And it's fun when you go back into sort of like what become what we identify as being the precursor to this this night. So you're looking at her, and they even sort of like tease at the fact that she have her hair down. So she gets a slash across her cheek, or she gets a part of her ear cut. And of course, we can't tell because her hair's down, and it's sort of covering the area where the injury would be. So they really tease out where how the timeline works right until really towards the the third act of this film that it starts like becoming more clear where it is and at that point we've kind of grown kind of sympathetic to her plight and by seeing her commit such hideous acts with such coldness it really sort of makes you question this of like is this the right path i mean obviously it's annoying the fact we live in this so failed society where you can't afford to your own house and that everything the decks really sort of stacked against you but is this the right way to to rebalance things yeah and and we confused because you know often in a slasher movie that the, the slasher person is a fairly one-dimensional character if if dimensional at all so you think of the shape from halloween right there's, there's a backstory but he has no emotion he has no arc he just is um uh even even freddy krueger you know it's fairly fucking inconsistent over the movies what he is but if you think about the original movie he's just a pedophile yeah that that's his distinguishing characteristic um whereas here we're being asked to almost be complicit and you think well actually she's had a pretty fucking shitty life and the world's really stacked against her and then you know are we cheering her on through some of these kills (laughs) because like i said annoying neighbors um and, and and you're absolutely right. It's constructed really smartly, which shows you it's coming from a from someone who isn't necessarily a genre filmmaker in that regard. Um, 
in the way that her injuries and the like are portrayed as we flip back and through the film and, and the way she's dressing and how she is and who she is. So, again, I think this is the problem a lot of people have with the film. It's too well made to work with these gross-out moments of slasherdom, which are just quite alien, especially in, in sort of Hong Kong movies. You know, we're, we're used to... We're not used to it, but we've seen... And we've talked about Cat 3 movies before, but they're not usually this well made or they're, or they're fully exploitative or they're fully tongue-in-cheek, whereas this is... This feels like a serious movie about serious issues where people get killed by storage bag. I think totally understand what you're saying, and I think the fact that we got uh, Josie... Tootie Ho as the um, as our lead, I think, really sort of only adds to this sort of conundrum we we place because it's sort of flying in the face of everything that we know. We believe that we are um, that we know the rules and tropes of this this genre, and in many ways, it plays against that by giving us a a killer who whose um, drive is is pure by. Not is is driven by misfortune rather than a a big breaking moment. Like you look at all the all the other serial killers, like Jason's mom's inspired by the fact that the camp counselors were having sex instead of watching him watching the lake. Um, you look at something like um, the burning, and the, and Cropsey was set on fire by the kids playing the pranks. So that's his source of revenge. Here we have someone who's like just been been set off by the system and having a hard life that's her whole trigger point to this situation and she's such a likable character as well um she does what she can to get by and she puts up a lot from people who are basically looking to exploit her good nature um and at the same time you as you point out already i mean here we have a film that's very dealing with an intelligent issue and at the same time playing around with a lot of exploitation angles and we're not used to this sort of depth in our exploitation exploitation cinema uh, at the same time more mainstream cinema and is not used to dealing with elements so grotesque as we get in this so we have these two worlds sort of hitting joining sort of like meeting in a head-on collision um and the end result really being this film which i think is diverse and challenging but at the same time it's very it's it's all the more interesting because of it and it belongs in that sort of category of films such as like dumplings yeah i'm i'm i so so in 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 haitian so absolutely if you wanted um maybe a, a different reference point it feels like some of those ben weekly films like sightseers or yeah um uh the film prevenge um which isn't a ben weekly film but you know it's got this it, it's talking about something through the through the lens of a genre murder slasher film um mm. i mean prevenge i'd really recommend that that's a that's a fun british film um, but you, you you know what I mean. It 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 doesn't feel variation to do this. Yeah, it 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 would be all right if it started off as one thing and morphed into the other. But the fact it's all totally interlaced is really, really unusual for the sorts of films that we're used to watching from Hong Kong in general and, and Asia in general. 
something that may be a bit of a, a spoiler here, so I'll just uh, say spoiler It's, mate, it's now. a 13-year-old film. I think we can spoil it. <laughs> I just want to say, so, like, when we find the final breaking point for her that launches her into this night of terror, should we say, were you surprised that the one victim that she doesn't choose to go for is probably the most obvious uh, one, the, the sole source of all her... Uh, that uh, that caused her to sort of like go off the deep end. So you're going to have to explain further. The old couple. Um. Because she's going to buy their flat. She's going to buy. Oh, why doesn't she? Yeah. Why doesn't why doesn't she kill the, the couple that stopping her buying the flat? Well, she wants to buy it from them, doesn't doesn't she? So if she kills them. I guess that then would lead into all kinds of other issues. And what she wants to do is make that. Her plan is. I don't. I think she probably ends up killing more people than she probably intended to to start with. But because of the nature of um, face and things like that, a property we've seen it before in like ghost stories, haven't we? Oh, this place is haunted. They can't sell it. So if this prop, if this property has got, oh, there were three murders here, that would bring the price down. So I, I assume there's no point murdering the people she wants to buy it from because that might stop her being able to buy it. That's 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 just me being ultra logical about it. And she, yeah, she decides to murder. You know, I'm sure she meant. To, I'm sure what she meant to do was probably murder the security guard and murder the the pregnant woman and her husband, and then everything else from there is an escalation, isn't it? Yeah, that was my. Now you say it like that, it makes me think of that Aquafina episode where she's trying to sell the Chinese murder house. Hmm. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's the. Um, I think. Have we not watched another film with a similar? idea maybe not maybe i have i can't remember it just feels uh it feels a familiar tra- maybe it's an american horror story thing i don't know oh it is isn't it yeah american horror story had uh mad house is the first one yeah but the ghosts just uh, are de- just appear to stop people buying the house don't they that's the um america, you're trying to find logic in american horror story it, it's every <laughs> season is is six episodes too long yeah, you get to, I always get to the halfway point. And it's like I'm done. <laughs> I, I always kind of enjoy it, but you're right. Oh, as everything that I see, I just web, web I see a lot of navel gazing, and yeah, I, I, there's there are some shitty seasons, and there's some stuff which <laughs> some. I yeah. But there's also there, there's there's something about it which I find enjoyable. I just think stop now, Ryan Murphy. Do something else. <laughs> the one good thing Ryan Murphy did was Nip Tuck. Mm. And then he gave us Glee, which I hate watched. But everybody, um, you know, it was incredibly popular for 15 minutes, right? And now everyone looks at it with a groan. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, talk about problematic cast. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. It's a, it's a thing that wouldn't have been made five years later, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, some people wouldn't have been there. So. Indeed, indeed, indeed. But, um, no, Dream Home. Um, anything else you want to bring up on this one? <clears throat> well, just what I want to say. So, so I think one of, sort of the, the, the the ideas of the film was to, you know, in 852 Films is, is to, is to sort of repopularize proper horror movies in, in Hong Kong. Um, so, Juno Mack, who is one of the policemen. In this film, works work with uh, sort of an, another one of these singer actors from Hong Kong. Um, he went on and made a film, which I was alluding to at the beginning. I've just had to look up while we're talking, called Revenge: A Love Story. So he starred and directed in that, which is from them. And then he went on to make Rigor Mortis, which is this kind of 
modern take on Yangshu Jiangxi movies, you know, you know, jumping, jumping, hopping vampire movies. So it kind of did that. And again, these are movies which I'm pretty certain are more popular in the West than they ever were in Hong Kong. So I don't think it really worked. Obviously, it's limited. Just you know, you're never going to get these films shown in mainland China, and and you know, never going to get shown in Malaysia and places like that. So I don't think it necessarily really worked although you know as a, as a filmmaking production house it's it's still going but i think i've seen more films made in the west and in america and in the uk than never went out there but i i really like this film but re-watching it yesterday in preparation for this reminded me how long it had been since i'd seen it and that you know i, I can see why people don't like it that, that it is it is there's this huge tonal disconnect which i love and i love the you know i love the interesting kills i love the social stuff but it is a bit like watching two movies at the same time but i stand by it i think i put it in our top 50 movies of all time so i'm glad we've got to speak about it i think people should hunt it out if they can what about yourself I certainly enjoyed this one. I thought it was a little rough going, but um, as distantly camp mood that I was in when I was watching it, so there were certainly moments in this which uh, were a little rough. Uh, but overall, the story itself was very good, and I thought it was a very engaging performance from Josie Ho, who I don't think she really gets a lot of credit as an actress. I mean, she's obviously made dances over into the US with things such as like Contagion. She has indeed, and and like I say, she's she's made films in the US. I mean, she's um, she's unfortunate that she sort of rose to prominence in the nineties. Uh, um, obviously, we saw her in the Twins Effect, um, and she, she's been in a lot of films. But I think she came to prominence in an age where. You know, we still got the Maggie Chungs and the Michelle Yeohs and people like that on the go. But I don't think, I just don't, I think that the female, female actresses, other than the, the, the standard four and the Chinese mainland ones, and obviously what happens is a Hong Kong movie needs a mainland actor or actress in it to make any money. So she's, I, think, I just think she's missed out on being the star that she really should be. Um, I think people like us, you know, we're, we're aware of her. But yeah, I don't know. I, I always feel a bit sorry for her, but then I realise, you know, she's probably a multi-millionaireess without even having to do the acting. So my sympathy goes down. But but you know what I mean. There's the sort of there's this sort of late nineties, early two thousands era where it's all about Andy Lau and Ethan Chan and Daniel Wu and all these sort of guy guys, and and there aren't the Hong Kong ladies that that have the same. Um, same effect as maybe there was a generation before and, and, and potentially even generation after. But there we go. That's that's just my view. Why don't people write in and argue with me? <laughs> so there we have it. Uh, that was Dream Home. Um, if you haven't uh, seen it already, definitely go check it out. I think it's uh, a big recommendation from us both if uh, you haven't gathered already. Um, and you know, let us know what you've been watching over the spooky season. We always love to hear from you guys, which is uh, you can contact us at ACFilmClub at yahoo.com. 
You can uh, also get in touch with us through the website, which is asiancinemafilmclub.wordpress.com. You can come and say hi to us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And uh, if you haven't done already, please do hit the like and subscribe button. Wherever you happen to be listening to us, leave us a review, leave us a rating. It all helps raise the profile of the show as well. But until next time, thank you as always for listening. Thank you to my co-host, Stephen. It's a pleasure. And have yourself a wonderful spooky season. And join us next time for another pick from the depths of Asian cinema. But until then, good night. (laughs) 